Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego. Rob, how are you today? I'm doing great, Larry. It's good to be back, and uh, nice to see you. Well, thank you. You too. And uh, last week, uh, we hit the first of the days between on Jerry's birthday. Today is the final day of the days between uh, on the day of Jerry's passing. So uh, if you thought we were going to be doing a lot of talking about Jerry today, you were right. Uh, and Dan, could you please get us started with our first clip of the day? If there's a song uh, ever played by the Grateful Dead that's more symbolic of Jerry than Deal, I don't know what it is. That's one of my all-time favorite deals from Alpine Valley uh, in July of 1989, uh, the first night of their final three-night run uh, at Alpine Valley before they shifted to Soldier Field for the last five or six years there. But I love this song, and I think that's a great clip. What are your thoughts? I've always been a huge fan of that Alpine version, and I think Hetty version actually even rates it as the, uh, the best deal ever played. It's nice to know for all the people that didn't think, you know, the Grateful Dead had um, all of its fire at the end of the 80s, early 90s. Uh, I challenge them to listen to that Alpine deal and, and revise their opinion. Well, I think you're right, you know, and look, we're talking about Jerry today, so let's just cut straight to the chase. A Grateful Dead show, in my opinion, 99% of the time is going to rise or fall with Jerry. If Jerry's having a hot night, people are going to talk about that show forever. It doesn't matter what they play. If Jerry's having an off night, they're going to find everything in the world to bitch about. And I know because I was there for plenty of hot nights and just as many of the nights that weren't quite as hot as we were hoping for when we walked in the door. By the way, on those nights, we still had a hell of a lot of fun. So I don't want to make it sound like it was a, a negative experience or anything. But when Jerry comes out, you know, and he's just on fire like he is, he was for that entire Alpine run. And we're going to be hearing more from that run in a few minutes. When he's when he's like that, it just takes everything to another level. And when you have a, a first set closer like a deal and, you know, Jerry's on top of it and he's just jamming away. The intermission just, you know, seems to fly right by because, you know, you're all hyped up from what they're doing and you're just ready for them to come out and tear it apart in the second set, which they typically did at Alpine Valley. You know, I, th I think one of the things we're going to see today, Rob, in the songs that we play from Jerry really hits on this theme, you know, trying to find examples when Jerry's not just playing good, but he's sounding like he's having fun. And there's, you know, a little uh, dance step in his feet, if you might say, uh, you know, the jelly knees, as we all like to call it with Jerry. So we'll be getting to that more in a few minutes and all of that. And uh, hopefully our listeners will go along for the ride and uh, see how we support our good friend uh, Jerry Garcia today. Let me jump in on that, too, because, you know, th that Alpine Valley deal is from, I believe, what, July 19th, 1989. If you go back two episodes and we had Tim Seymour on, the, the deal we played from that night was July 4th, 1989, which I think is the second most popular version on, on Heady version. So it wasn't just that Alpine run that they were fired up. It was all of July. That 89 um, summer tour was uh, was you know, pretty stellar all the way through. I mean, I saw, I, I want to say the giant stadium shows that summer and they were as good as anything that I saw ever. 
So that that whole eighty nine, um, they're they're just rocking. They're just crushing it out there. But uh, but obviously that was a good time to see a deal. No doubt, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, it can be very insular for us sometimes, right? If you see a show at Alpine Valley and they're crushing it, like oh, that's you know. But when you look at it from the more global picture, which a lot of us can do now in the, you know, the last 20 years, thanks to the availability of all of these shows, not that we didn't have them all on tapes before, you know, as you really get a chance to, you know, to focus on some of these and just really hear the way Jerry takes it. And, and you're right, you know, you look at the entire 1989 tour, and I think it was, uh, you know, an interesting time for the dead, an interesting time for Jerry health-wise and everything else. Um, but they were on fire that year. There's no doubt about it. And uh, Brent was up to his best. And, you know, we've already talked about, uh, you know, his career winding down shortly thereafter. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you know, on a day like today, uh, and, and we're, what, now 37, 27 years out from Jerry's passing, um, which is basically impossible to believe, but true nonetheless. But don't you think that, like, that whole 89 period, part of the reason it was so hot is because that was when Jerry was, like, really getting into playing with the MIDI? And was like really excited about uh, about trying something new out. So the, you know that's when we were getting all the horn sounds and all the um, all, all the, like the clavinet sounds. Yeah, you saw it especially in the fall tour of '89. But summer of '89, he was definitely kicking it in. But that was uh, you know you'd, you'd hear it on Foolish Heart. You'd definitely hear it on the other one. You'd hear it on all sorts of things. And I think anytime like you're a kid with a new toy, it, it causes you to um, to get excited about trying new things and experimenting with new things. And like a lot of times, the best work you get out of any musician. Is when they found their muse or found inspiration in something new. I think that's an excellent point, you know, and 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 I will be the first to admit that I don't have nearly the technical knowledge of the uh, of the, of the instrumentation and, and the things that they have up on stage. But uh, you know, just even as a more uh, a practical approach, to that from a guy who just you know has always enjoyed being there, you know, and, and looking at what they had on stage and and looking at, you know, at, the, at the changes in instruments and 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 setups and everything they had over the years. You know, there's no doubt that uh, that that a guy like Jerry, I think, would be enamored of something like that. And you know, again, it makes me wonder. You know, what what would have happened to the whole dead scene and the whole dead experience had it come along 20 years later? You know, and hit right in the middle of this whole explosion of the internet and everything. I mean, you know, can you imagine? It, it, it's impossible for me to imagine not being inside a dead show and literally knowing as the show is going on, you know, what they're playing and what's happening and, you know, or to be able to just touch and say, Hey, I, I wonder if they ever played this song before and go to the internet and pull it down. It's, it's, you know, and that's just a long way of saying, I agree with you. And I think that uh, it does show that Jerry was very happy for a lot of reasons, but let's talk a little bit about Jerry for a minute here. And you, uh, I wanted to, dig up a couple of things to talk about today. And this is why it's very important to have partners when you do podcasts, because I was all set to go diving into a topic that we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. Rob successfully reminded me of that and was even nicer to come up with uh, a few articles that all share a theme, which is the straight world and its new uh, bromance with Jerry Garcia. And, you know, I, I think it kind of started right around the time he died uh, and just gradually got stronger over time. And, and now it's, 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 it's like full out, you know, flirtation, right? Uh, the one I love just for starters, Rob, is the Empire State Building being bathed in psychedelic lights in honor of Jerry. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, first of all, the uh, the guy that does the lights, the Empire State Building, we've known for quite a while as a deadhead. So it's not surprising to me that he's done it. And if you think back to, um, you know, fairly well a few years ago, uh, they actually coordinated the lights on U.S. Blues. Um, while, while it was being played live in Chicago, they're, you know, having the lights dance at the Empire State Building in time to that U.S. Blues being played live. So that gives you a sense of just kind of like, you know, what camaraderie you have with the person that does the lighting. But I mean, look, the, the lighting of the Empire State Building, 
it's probably one of the most iconic lightings of, of anything in the United States. The only thing I think that comes close is when the Bay Bridge in San Francisco was doing like their art experimentation. It was doing really, really funky things over there. But, you know, nothing, nothing like kind of stands out. Like when, when the Rangers win and you get like a red and blue, you know, Empire State Building, you know, you always know like what's happening based on what the lights are, uh, are doing in New York. And it gives all New Yorkers a sense of like what's going on in the world. My favorite one, just to throw in there, was when M&M's announced that their new color was going to be blue. They announced it by the lighting on the Empire State Building. And I thought that was very cool of them. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, like the only thing my, my kids wanted to see when they got to New York was the Statue of Liberty in the Empire State Building. That was it. You know, like even as like, you know, six and seven year olds, you understand like the iconic, iconic nature of that building. But, you know, to have to have August 1st lit up where the whole city got to see it, not just in one color, but as you said, in psychedelic, you know, sort of tie dyed fashion was a, uh, one of the coolest homages you could, uh, you could pay to Jerry. And I think the other one that I love that happened on, on August 1st was the mayor of San Francisco dedicating uh, August 1st as, you know, the, the Jerry Garcia day in the city of San Francisco. So, you know, Strasburg has Mozart and, you know, San Francisco has Garcia. Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is the town should be known for that. And it's a moniker and a, and a connection that they should proudly associate with. And I'm sure Jerry proudly associated with him himself, you know, in his own way. Um, but, you know, who wouldn't want to take advantage of something like that? And, you know, it, for so many reasons. I mean, we already, you know, those of us that are, have been on the bus and in the scene for a while, I think, instinctively think of the hate and Jerry and, and all of that. I mean, you know, to me, um, you know, it kind of always comes down a little bit to, you know, what do we think of Jerry and how do we think of him? And, and I know, Rob, you and I have talked about the fact that, you know, a lot of the Garcia family members are, you know, are not big fans of all of these deadheads who treat him, you know, some sort of an idol or a god or anything like that. And while I, I can understand why that would be difficult for family members, um, you know, if somebody thought my dad was a god or even worse, somebody thought I was a god, my kids would really have a good laugh about that. Um, you know, but by the same token, Jerry was who he was. And, and I just like to think of him as the coolest hippie out there uh, who really knew how to entertain the crowd in a way that we all wanted to be entertained. And and he he had a, 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 an image, an aura, a persona that at, at least my instinct on it always was that he would be a really, really fun guy to sit down and talk with for a little while. He'd be a great guy to sit down and smoke a joint with. And, you know, that's about as much of a, you know, fan statement as I ever wanted to make about Jerry, because, you know, there's always the concern that what if they turn out to be assholes. But I don't think that was the case with Jerry. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's just wonderful to see if the city of New York feels it on a big enough level. Good. That's just more love for him going around. Yeah. Well, the flip side of that, too, Larry, is uh, would Garcia actually welcome all this attention? Should he be alive? I mean, if you think about it from the perspective that he didn't even go to his own Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction because he didn't want the fanfare. And other things that he was invited to, it was rare that he made an appearance away from the Grateful Dead to do something that you know was not you know musically related. The only ones I can think of that are kind of like outside of the ordinary is when he and Vince and Bob went and sung the national anthem to open the uh, San Francisco um, baseball season, right? Yeah. So it's it, it is really rare. But I mean, I know that they talked about like putting a postage stamp out of Garcia that you know he was against, and he, he made fun of it when another country actually did it for him, saying like it's bad enough I've got to see my face in my own head every day. Um, so you know it's. It, it, it's hard to say whether or not he'd appreciate the fanfare, whether or not the humility that he had um, would have downplayed this. But I will say for the San Francisco inauguration there, uh, Trixie was front and center. She was there accepting, you know, sort of the key to the city and the uh, the monument. So I think the uh, the perception from his kids of, of how he was as a father back in like the 70s and 80s versus how he is remembered um, might be a little bit different. Uh, and, you know, things change with, with time. And I think they probably appreciate the, the love and reverence that people have for their father. 
Well, I, I hope you're right. And, and you just said something a second ago uh, that really resonated with me, and I'm glad you said it because, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to, to harp a little bit on this today is, wow, how, you know, the whole world has, uh, has fallen in love with Jerry, but they only, only after he died, right? We, none of this was happening while he was alive. And we'll talk about MLB in a minute and, you know, other, other groups that have, that have welcomed him. But maybe uh, it just had to be that, you know, there had to be, a, you know, until after he died. Maybe it was something that either people instinctively felt or he let be known or, uh, you know, that, that it wasn't, you know, maybe he, you're right. I don't know that he would necessarily want to be around and see the statue of uh, the, the Empire State Building, you know, bathed in psychedelic lights in his honor. You know, for all of us, we think, wow, how cool. We love Jerry. What a great thing. But if you're the guy yourself, I mean, you know, we, we saw the documentary and we know the load he carried around with him, certainly in his, you know, in his later years, you know, to, to, you know, to try and live up to his his reputation and his, you know, the the, the, pla the plateau and the, the pedestal that all his fans had put him on. And it proved to be too much for him or any normal human being. But, I, you know, either way, uh, I think the Empire State Building is great. I think the city of San Francisco is great. And it just kind of cracks me up that like every major league baseball team around is having Jerry Garcia Day, including the St. Louis Cardinals, I might add, which is certainly fun. I've got my Cardinals, you know, Jerry Garcia Day tie-dye t-shirt and I wear it and it's all great. And, uh, you know, but but it, it, that also just strikes me as a little bit funny, you know, a, a, an interesting connection. And in that same vein, I note that uh, during last season's uh, football playoffs on the advertising bumpers going in and out of playing time, they were constantly playing a lot of Grateful Dead clips. Yeah, I think that's relatively common now. I think that um, a lot of the major sports leagues are, are doing that with, you know, and again, a lot of that comes down to whoever it is at the um, at the network that's choosing the music to go in and out. And I think a lot of those guys are kind of jam band people. So whether it's, you know, catching widespread panic here and there, or catching fish here and there, or catching, you know, like a handful of other bands where if, if you know what you're listening to, you're like, ah, that's that, instead of playing mainstream music. But, you know, Maybe we should get back to, to a little bit of the music and, and understand why people are celebrating it right now. And I think you picked out a great clip, one of my all-time favorites, coming from um, from March 18th, 1995, from the Philadelphia Spectrum, which is one of the most playful Ico Icos I've ever heard, uh, where like the, the sort of the call and, um, and response that was coming at the end of that song was so fun. And, uh, you know, people forget, just, you know, again, we, we've talked about the iconic um, sort of like uh, Creole or Caribbean nature of, of, uh, of Ico and of Women Are Smarter. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's fun. It's always fun. But sometimes it's really, really playful. And I think what you picked out is it's definitely one of the best. So you want to cue that one up, Dan? I'm 
That's great. And, you know, for people who didn't have a chance to see him play it live, it was always a fun tune and it was always a great tune. And it would always be right at the last, after the last verse, the last time around, you know, when Jerry would do the multiple hay nows. And, you know, I remember on average, it would usually be about four hay nows. Maybe on a good night, you'd get five or even six. But this night, he just went on and on and he did it softly and he did it loud and he did it playfully and he did it sing-songy. And uh, it, this is 1995, man. Everybody talked about, oh, after, you know, the mid to late 90s, the Grateful Dead had had it. This is Jerry Garcia a few months before he dies up on stage having a ball. And it, it, you can watch it on YouTube under a clip of examples of Jerry dancing on stage and see how much fun he was having. Yeah, I got to say, like, this is one of the songs that made me fall in love with the Grateful Dead when I was 15 or 16. Because, like, the heyday of Icos was probably, like, 85 to 88. And that was, you know, for me, right when I was getting into going to see them. And, you know, as I came to the point where I wanted to go see them because I was familiar with a lot of their songs. But Ico is one of the ones that, like, really got me enthusiastic about the band in general. No doubt. You know, I, I always talk about uh, September 82, Syracuse Carrier, though my second show ever, as being the one that firmly got me on the bus when I was there with my good buddy Mikey. Um and you know, I went. And I listened to that one last night because I was trying to decide what Ico to pull. And you know, to me, in my mind, of all the Icos I ever saw, that's my favorite, probably because it was the first time I ever heard it. Probably because the the mushrooms had long priorly kicked in, and uh, you know, it was the first time I was just really experiencing it for you know for what it was. Um, and I went back and listened to it. It comes out of space, and it's a beautiful Ico, and it's really really good. But even that one at the end only has about four or five call responses before it's all done and over. Uh, but no doubt that night, hearing that song, and, and you know, my my dead knowledge was still very limited at the time. It was only my second show, and I had never heard of Ico before, and I just was instantly taken by it and yeah. decided I have to go see them every time, if not for any reason, just to hope they play Ico. Yeah. I think the best one I ever saw, I think you were probably at the show as well, was um, 620, 1991 from Pine Knob, and that Ico was, was spectacular. Yep, 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 yep. That was a good one as well. And, you know, and I always like to remind folks, the first Ico ever was in St. Louis, and it was like one verse, and then they immediately dived back into Not Fade Away. And I remember hearing that a long time ago, and somebody said, oh, yeah, here's the first Ico. And I'm like, but they're barely playing it. Well, they were just experimenting. But I do take pride in the fact that they played it in St. Louis, you know, for whatever that's worth. So um, it is a great tune, and it, it, it is always fun to hear uh, Jerry play that. And like we say, especially to know that, um, you know, if you look at the timing of 95, it's just nice that... You could go to 10 shows in 95 and maybe he'd be flat. But if you're at that show in Philadelphia that night, it was all worth it just to make it there to see him at that moment shine like that. Yeah, I think it's fun. I mean, look, the, part of the whole thing with the days between is really just focusing on, on the music of Garcia. And again, like I know we're the headed head cannabis show, but, um, you know, we, we can talk about cannabis all the time. I think there's a couple weeks a year where it's really fun just to go, OK, let's just talk about the Grateful Dead and let's talk about the, uh, the, the music of Garcia. Uh, and I know it's a bit cliche to do it during this period, but um, but you know at the same time it gives us an opportunity to to you know pull out gems and pull out you know different things from different eras that we didn't necessarily do in other shows where we're trying to be more topical on a specific person or a specific date, but you know being able to just throw things out from uh, from a whole range of um, of shows like we've we've gotten a chance to do that a couple times in the last few weeks since it's, it's a lot of fun and I think you've got uh, some other really fun ones queued up for us which would include some tunes we never expected to hear Garcia play. Um, so until 1995, you know, I don't think anyone in the Grateful Dead community outside of, you know, the people that actually got to sit in club front or in his living room uh, got to hear him play. So uh, what do you have queued up for us next? Uh, well, uh, Dan, go ahead. we talked about this one last week. Uh, go ahead and throw this one on, Dan. 
some take delight in the carriage of old. Others take delight in fishing and bowling. I take delight in the fruit of the barley. Caught the pretty women in the morning so early. Wash your hands, girl, done. Whack for the tidy old. Whack for the tidy old. There's whiskey in the jar. What is the name of that? Whiskey in the jar, it's whiskey called. Whiskey in the jar. That's I the song that has that I Am a Bold very, Deceiver in it. Years, years yeah. ago. Yeah, right. I haven't heard that one in 30 years. Yeah, maybe. right. I haven't either. I just remembered it. <laughs> the whole song, ring, words and all. Well, whack fall the daddy-o. Daddy whack fall the daddy-o. Right. It's got great lyrics. It's a cool song. Yeah, it's a cool song. I guess that's Irish. I hope so. Yeah. Okay, so let me just say that uh, that's the essence of Jerry Garcia right there. You know, we don't get to see it. It's back in private with his guys. And we all love his music. And I know you've talked about this a little bit, Rob. I've talked about it from time to time. We try to go back and see the all the, the musical examples that ultimately built the foundation that, you know, Jerry based all of his music and playing on. It turned him into this walking encyclopedia of music that there he is with the Grateful Dead rehearsing in 1993 and out of nowhere, he just starts playing some tune that popped into his head and, you know, chats about it for a minute. It, it's turned us into a walking encyclopedia of music, Larry. It's not just it's not just Jerry. He was a walking encyclopedia. But as a result of his encyclopedic knowledge, it, it's made, you know, other people like ourselves delve into all sorts of genres of music that we never otherwise would have. I mean, originally it was just delving into specific songs of specific artists. But then, you know, that takes like a, a rabbit hole turn of its own. And all of a sudden now you're listening to, you know, Irish shanties, you know, that you would never otherwise listen to because, uh, because you know, like somehow you got turned on to it. And I can tell you that I remember very, very distinctly where I was the first time I heard Whiskey in the Jar and the first time that I heard the So Many Roads kind of a compilation um, CD. And it was uh, up in Eugene, Oregon. And there's like 10 of us traveling in the back of a, um, of a Suburban for a friend's wedding. And we were all kids that used to like go on tour together. It was kind of one of the first reunions after Garcia's passing. And that song, like where we all sort of were stunned because half of us had heard it, and half of us hadn't. And uh, and those of us that hadn't were like, "What the hell was that?" And like everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, you haven't heard that yet. It's amazing." Like, and it just completely sort of brought us back into that moment of like being back on tour together instead of like mourning the passing. It was like celebrating something new again for once. And it was such a great feeling. I I completely agree. And that's why you can go back and listen to Garcia forever, and even stuff that you've heard before if you haven't listened to it in a while, and you pop it back in, and you're like, "God, that's right." And, and as much as I love listening to him sing, I'm not going to lie about it. I would pay money to listen to the entire conversations that he has during rehearsal, just the, the talking part of it, you know, to, to get a chance to hear him talking unguarded, you know, and kind of unreservedly with his buddies, the way you and I were talking, even the way we're talking right now, I, I can't get enough of that, you know, and, and that that's the part uh, really on top of that. But the other thing about Whiskey in a Jar that we do just have to point out is, you know, Garcia was not unique in the musical world in covering it. You know, we even went so far as, I believe, Aerosmith gave it a cover as well. And not to diss Aerosmith, who was always one of my favorite, you know, 80s, you know, kind of East Coast grunge bands that just came and jammed it out all the time. Um, but uh, when Garcia plays it, he plays it with the Irish melody. He plays it with the Irish lilt to it. He you know, he, he, he knows how to pronounce those words and, you know, he can sit there and it, 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 it's just, it, it's like he's sitting in Ireland and just decided to pick up his guitar and start playing a tune. 
I've never heard the uh, the Aerosmith version. I've certainly heard the Metallica version, but uh, but I know a lot of other people have covered it. And we talked about this previously. I don't think most of them covered it until after it came out on on so many roads. So I'd like to say that you know whoever revived it first was probably Garcia. That makes me wonder. I mean, it, it, it's it's strange that a lot of people seem to think that if you're a heavy metal player, you only listen to other heavy metal bands. You know, if you're a, if you're a jam band person, you only listen to jam bands. You know, that maybe. It's, because most fans only listen to a certain genre of music, but most musicians have much broader um, uh, catalogs of what they listen to. It's just a question that they enjoy playing. And so, you know, I, I'm curious to know whether or not, you know, Steven Tyler and, uh, and Kirk Hemet were, you know, big fans of Garcia's and were listening to going, how oh, that's a great song to cover as well. Let's, let's get after that one. Yep. 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 It, it's look. And, and I think you're right about that too. You know, sometimes one artist covers a tune and all the other artists hear it and they thought, wow, never occurred to me to play that. And, but yeah, I think the way you also said it before is absolutely right. You know, for Garcia, this was knowledge he already had. You know, for the rest of us, it's 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 a it's a serious learning experience. But on the other hand, I make myself feel a whole lot better by saying that the guys who were sitting there in the studio with him were were basically learning it at that moment as well. And you know, again, that's that's just the beauty of him. You know, songs like that would pop up. Another one um, that I'm thinking of, and maybe this is the one I'm thinking of that was covered by Aerosmith, "Walking the Dog." Right. That's just a very uh, standard bluesy tune. And for a while there in the mid 80s, the dead picked it up and they were playing it. And, you know, they, that these aren't the kind of tunes that you typically see bands going and picking up. Right. They, they tend to play other bands tunes, maybe within their genre to some degree. Uh, but the dead just explored everywhere. We, we've talked at length about Dylan and we'll even get to Dylan, uh, I think, in our next musical clip in a minute. But, um, you know, something fun like whiskey in a jar is good. <laughs> But but I think I think Aerosmith actually may have covered it, and I know other bands like you know Slade covered it, and U two covered it, and um, who else? Uh, Thin Lizzy covered it. Like there's a, a handful of bands that uh, that covered it as well. So I'm I'm not. And, and a lot of those bands are hard are like hard slash bands, you know, and, and may just fit into their whole idea of drinking whiskey. I have no idea, but uh, yeah, look, the more the the more the cover it, the merrier, right? It's. Uh, it's like, who was it, the Harsh Mellows who covered uh, Ripple on the uh, Grateful Dead uh, compilation? Oh, no, Guns N' Roses. No, not Guns N' Roses. No, 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 Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction, that's what I meant. And, you know, if, if you listen to it, you're like, what? When you listen to it two or three times, you're like, that may be my favorite version ever of that song. It's, you know, it's just it's somebody else covering it, and it, it, it's great to hear. So, But speaking of which, you know, there's some great interpretations that, that you know, that you expect other people to cover. And one of those uh, is obviously Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's probably the most covered artist of all time. It's amazing to me, like, how many songs that, like, you, you can't pick a Dylan tune and now find someone that's played um, played covers. But even if they're, you know, part of the obscure part of his catalog. But on the ones that I think of as, like, the most iconic, um, you know, it, it's hard sometimes, like, to do it uh, real justice because you know, you, you're you're covering someone that's so iconic to begin with. It's kind of like the idea of like you know Jimi Hendrix covering Watchtower. Like you know was, was that was that going to fly? And he was able to do it in, in such a great way. And, and once in a while, you know Dylan will tell you like there's people that cover his songs better than he covers or he he does them himself. And I think that the Garcia band specifically covered Dylan's songs far better than Dylan played himself. And I think you know the Grateful Dead covered you know, at least ten or fifteen uh, uh, Dylan tunes as well. But of all of those, if someone were to ask me on any given day what my favorite song in the entire world is, um, you know, it, it vacillates back and forth between four or five. It has for about the last 10 years, but more often than not, I'd say it's Tangled Up in Blue. And, uh, and I think that the Garcia Band version of it is, is, you know, absolutely the reason why I'm so enamored with the song. I, I 
cannot disagree. I mean, it, it, but even Dylan's version of it, and even with, you know, Blood on the Tracks, he still has his voice pretty well, I think. But it, it, it's a little more halting in the way he plays it because it's played in that Dylan style. It's always kind of herky-jerky as he goes along. And Jerry just took it and, and truly made it into a melody the way he plays it. And, and you know, as you'll hear here, the problem with Tangled Up in Blue is I started listening to it trying to find, you know, about a minute of time to clip. And every time I thought I had a minute, Right at the end of that minute, they do something else. Well, I got to get that in, and I got to get that in, and finally, I was running out of uh, I was running out of tape there. So I, I, I just kind of settled with where he winds up with it at the end. Uh, but far be it for me to tell anybody what's the best part. I would just go listen to Tangled Up in Blue, the Jerry Garcia band playing it as many times as you can. And this version that we're about to hear is off of his uh, the JGB band's uh, double live album that came out in 1990. So Dan, spin this one for us, would you please? stuff that he's doing with his guitar you know and and there's five minutes of that guitar solo with him playing it on a high octave on a low octave back and forth and all around it's just amazing it was always the uh, the song would close out a second set also so when you think about like you know how you're leaving the show um you know once in a great while you get an encore out of garcia band you know maybe play a wonderful world or something like that but nine times out of ten you're either getting midnight moonlight to close the show or you're getting uh, tangled up in blue to close the show and both those would send you out you know feeling pretty high about the night, uh, but Tangled Up especially, like, you know, I'd say it was for every five times I saw uh, Midnight Moonlight, I might got might have gotten to see one uh, Tangled from Blue. So, you know, it was kind of like the treat of like, oh, tonight's a Tangled. Uh, and it was like, it never failed to deliver. It was always so much fun. It's, it's, it is a great tune. And I do love Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, uh, I, I do love Midnight Moonlight as well. In fact, the very first time I saw them, I saw Midnight Moonlight, and I was talking to a friend afterwards, and I was like, you know, I'm really bummed. I wanted to hear Tangled. He was like, dude, you heard Midnight Moonlight, man. That's one of Garcia's best tunes. When he jams on that thing, it's awesome. And it is. It's a fun, fun tune. And, and that's the beauty of Jerry. It doesn't really matter what he's playing, right? There's a million covers of stuff. You know, go ask somebody to sit down and pick up their, you know, their five favorite versions of Jerry songs. It's impossible. I was on, you know, I was on YouTube and Archive last night for hours, just long after I had picked the, the clips I wanted to play just listening to all the other ones that were out there, because how can you not? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I could have picked 15 different Tangles and, uh, you know, been happy with the, the choice of every one, which we've done before. You know, we, we've covered specific songs and said, you know, here's, you know, 10 different versions of it. But uh, with, with Tangled Up in Blue, like, I mean, first of all, that song was built to have backup singers. Uh, second of all, it was built to have 
um, major like melody overlays um, musically done the way Garcia does. And the best part of that is that he lets John Kahn and Melvin, um, and uh, I think at the time it was probably David Kemper playing drums, just really keep the uh, the song going. And then he just like jams completely and totally over what's already really energetic and just, you know, as you said, takes it high, takes it low. And that's what make it, makes it so much fun. Yep, and that's the beauty of seeing Jerry. He doesn't have to answer to anybody but himself. And, you know, on those nights, you, you, you know that whatever you're getting is, like the, the, the label says, pure Jerry. And, I mean, you know, not to diss deadheads who say they go to the show for Bob or they go for Phil or they go for anybody else because they're all integral and I love all of them. And it wouldn't be the Grateful Dead without any of them. But if it wasn't for Jerry, I don't know that the Grateful Dead, you know, would be the Grateful Dead. I think they'd be, you know, a very, very good rock and roll band. They'd be very creative, you know. And maybe they'd go the way of Moby Grape or Quicksilver Messenger Service as time goes on, uh, you know, without his musical influence. And again, I don't mean to say that to diss the rest of them, um, but I just think it's hard to imagine that, you know, Garcia and his energy and his spirit is is just not the ultimate driving force behind everything that happens with that band. Yeah, I agree. And, and sometimes it's on like the super energetic level and sometimes it's on the very mellow level. And, you know, one of the things we got out of Garcia in the later part of his career was the introduction of probably three or four really, really like interesting slow tunes that um, that became, you know, in retrospect, some of his most iconic songs, whether it was uh, Standing on the Moon or um, The Days Between or So Many Roads. You know, those were the three that were probably released, you know, from 1988 or 87 forward that uh, just made a huge impact. But, you know, So Many Roads didn't even come out as a song until 1992. It had four years of, of play. And in those four years, um, you know, I can think of 20 versions that are simply just absolutely amazing. And, you know, for that reason, there's a, there's a lot of soul in that song and a lot of, um, a, a, a lot of, uh, what's the right way to say it? Uh, emotion that's, that's put in the song that, you know, people resonate with after his passing. And I think the one that, you know, everyone looks to as the, uh, as the version. And it, although I don't think it's even close to the best version, it might be the most soulful version is from the final night the Grateful Dead ever played which is uh, July 9th, 1995. And, you know, I've got a special story about that. One. I'm, not, I'm sure I've told you personally, Larry, but I probably never, you know, said to the audience, I didn't get in that night. I was at Soldier Field and, and I didn't have a ticket. And uh, I thought I had a ticket until like 20 minutes before showtime and things happened and someone else ended up with my ticket and I ended up getting shut out. So I was standing outside the venue. And at the time you were able to get, you know, kind of right up to the fence line of the venue. And uh, I knew where like, all of my friends met during during set break. And so I stood outside where that gate was by the Greenpeace table. And I was able to get um, my girlfriend at the time to, to come out and give me the car keys to, to her car so I could at least just go, you know, lie down, take a nap, whatever. And so, like, security guys thought I was trying to, like, sneak in. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, trying to get the car keys and, you know, spoke to them in a really, like, positive way. And about 10 minutes later, just as the Shakedown Street started the second set, um, this guy walks out and he's like, Hey, do you want to go into the show? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And he's like, all right. So he takes me. I was like, Whoa, you serious? And he's like, yeah, man, follow me. And I followed him. We walked like through the hallway and we started walking down the stairs and he kept getting me closer and closer to the floor. And I was like, I'm like, Oh, nice. Thanks. But, you know, and this is a ticketed show. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a GA show. And then he walks me onto the floor. And as we're walking, every other security guard saying hello to this guy, I finally look at him and I was like, you know, what do you, what do you do at soldier field? He's like, I'm the head of security. I'm like, you're kidding me. And he's like, yeah. He's like, look, man, like you're the only person that wasn't giving me a hard time all night. You're being super cool out there. And he's like, he's like, you're up in front row. And I was like, I probably shouldn't say this, but, but yes, I have been, you know, but, but for general admission shows, I've never been front row for a ticketed show. 
And he's like, well, let's go. And he just kept walking me up, walking me up, walking me up. And by the end of shakedown, I was, uh, I was front row for the, the final show. And I stayed there through the, uh, the Samba in the rain, by the end of the Samba in the rain, I decided to walk back. So none of my friends were there. And I knew all my friends were in the back of the floor where, you know, the, all the seats were pretty much ripped down. It's just an open floor pit back there. But I walked back and started telling the story right as the so many roads started. So whenever I hear the so many roads, I always think back to that night and thank you to whoever was the, the head of security at Soldier Field on July 9th, 1995. You know, but for you, uh, I would have not seen the Grateful Dead's final show and I, I only saw half of it. But I listened to the rest of it from the, you know, just outside the venue. But I actually got walked in and, and got to hear what's now considered to be kind of like a legendary performance of so many roads and specifically because it was, you know, the final night. So um, I don't know if I've ever told you that one before there. No, that's a great story. And you know what? It's perfectly fitting for a guy like you who was such a hardcore deadhead. It's perfectly fitting for the Grateful Dead. And it's absolutely perfectly fitting. That was the last show that they ever played. And, you know, I think that's wonderful. And that's, you know, a great renewal to the spirit, right? That even like in these cities where sometimes law enforcement looked at the dead with, you know, slightly askance, you know, at the end of the day, I think they really did know deep down that the deadheads were the ones who they most enjoyed having to deal with because the deadheads, other than, you know, getting stoned and sitting quietly, weren't fighting with people, weren't, you know, crawling all over everyone, weren't, you know, causing fights and, you know, improperly touching women or the kind of stuff you'd see at a lot of other concerts, not, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there were certainly people outside the fence at a dead show who could be very rude and obnoxious. And you demonstrated the stupidity in behaving that way um, for them. Um, but, uh, look, that's a great story and it's wonderful that you got in and, and, um, to me, the, the highlight of this so many roads is I, I think of stories, it's situations that I've experienced with older relatives and, and stories that other people have told me about older relatives, whereas the, the relative gets closer to the end of their life. And, and, you know, sometimes even right before the end of their life, they oftentimes experience, you know, like moments of clarity and moments where they, they snap right back into it. And maybe, you know, some event can kind of bring them back in and, and, and center them for a little while. And, you know, although none of us obviously knew at the time that, uh, you know, what was in store for Jerry within a month from the date of that show, looking back on it, you know, I can't help but wonder if, you know, somehow he himself didn't know that, uh, you know, perhaps things might be coming to an end. And, you know, what I, what I call an otherwise, you know, more or less forgetful Jerry night, you know, the Black Muddy River Encore was enough to first time ever to get me up and, and starting to walk to the exit during an encore uh, until Phil saved the day with the tour ending box of rain and a little sunshine for everyone. But, you know, that night when they're sit there playing and all of a sudden he hits into this song and it's like he, he just cut through all the fog with a knife and he stepped to the front of the stage to play this tune and it was like he was there, 100% of them, the guitar, the singing, the emotion. And, you know, again, looking back on it, you know, it almost brings a tear to my eye because I, I really wonder if he said, you know, no matter what else happens tonight, I, I gotta, I've got to leave my mark with something. And, and this was the moment that he picked to do it. And it was, it's just uh, incredibly special. Yeah, and, and before we play the clip, I, I apologize. I had said that um, I was up there for the shakedown and the, uh, and the Samba. It was actually the shakedown and the Samson. And the Samba came after the So Many Roads. So uh, brain fart there. But uh, For those keeping score at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like to make sure I'm accurate if I can be. But yeah, it was Shakedown, Samson, So Many Roads, Samba. Okay, let's hear it.
Okay, so first of all, that emotion in his voice is exactly what we were talking about earlier, right? Jerry just catching the fire, catching the spirit, and you hear the crowd react off of it. You know, this is this is more than just Jerry. This is Jerry giving it that extra effort, and everybody's loving it, and he's got it cranking, and he's got it cranking, and then he just brings it down and just leaves you. Like, instead of having to jump off at the end of the song from the 10th floor, he brings you right down to the ground floor and just leaves you there, and it's it's, you know, Gives you chills hearing it because it's a great song. He plays it beautifully, and it's the last time he was ever going to do it. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, there, there's other, as I said, there's other versions I like um, better for like the pure like sort of soul of what you were just describing. March 27th, 1995, from the um, from the Omni in Atlanta. If you haven't heard, it, it's a version that like I don't know how more people haven't like picked up on this one, but it's probably one of like the most iconic versions I can think of in terms of like just Jerry basically almost in tears um, when he's singing it. And then the other one, in terms of pure energy, I'd say is uh, September 18th, 1994 from Shoreline Amphitheater. And that one is um, right when they started doing the uh, the Ease My Souls and then the jam, and then they bring back the Ease My Souls, um, you know, towards the end. Uh, so, you know, it used to just be that you'd get the, uh, you'd, you'd get the, somebody wrote Ease My Soul and then the jam, they'd end the song, but then they started, you know, doing the bring back the same way they did with Stella Blue and the same same way they did with Standing on the Moon towards the end. But yeah, this, this July 9th version is, it's, unbelievable especially because it's the only time we ever sort of just stopped completely it was like lord i've been walking down that road you know yes and it is just so wonderful all the way through and and uh the emotion that he brings to it and the way that he plays it and you know the way that the band supports him and it's uh it's a wonderful thing it's a wonderful tune it uh really really made a big difference for all of us that night who were there um both in terms of you know our enjoyment for that evening in and of itself and then, of course, you know, when we found out the significance of that evening uh, about a month later, uh, we lost Jerry. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. And, um, you know, that comes right at the very end of their career. And, and for the next clip I've got uh, Dan tuned up for, keyed up for us, um, was a standard uh, from the very beginning days of The Grateful Dead uh, and then took a very long vacation um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 756 shows from uh, December 31st, 78, uh, until the dead resurrected at the first night, July 17th, 1989, of that Alpine Valley run. And I believe July 17th is the show featured in the Downhill From Here video uh, that the band released. But this version of We Bid You Good Night is wonderful, not just because you know the dead are bringing it back for the first time in, in a number of years, uh, but because, like with a lot of the songs they brought back for the first time in a number of years, they actually took some time to rehearse it. And they're really, really on top of it. And, uh, you know, you can hear in this one, too, both not as much musical, but certainly in the way Jerry sings and his little his little chant in the middle of it and uh, his preaching, if you will. And uh, uh, it's absolutely wonderful. It was, it was amazing for me to get to hear it. Um, you know, and you just tell right away how special and significant it is. I uh, was there with a lot of good buddies that night, and uh, it did not disappoint. Dan, can you play that for us? Good night. 
Wow, you know, it's as close to a um, a true gospel song as the Grateful Dead ever played. You know, they're, they're, like Garcia, you got a lot of gospel, the Garcia event. But with the Grateful Dead, you know, like you had some parables. You had Samson, you know, you had a handful of others, but you didn't you didn't actually have like true gospel. And that's you know that, that's that's the only time they did it. And it was one of those things that they only brought it back a cappella. They only brought it back, um, you know, from '89 to '95. And you know. The thing that's so amazing to me about Larry is that they did take such a huge break with it, but they still played the Bid You Goodnight theme at the end of Going Down the Road. You know, like as Going Down the Road ended, you know, the, the jam they'd play, especially in like the mid to late 80s, was uh, uh, was the Bid You Goodnight jam. And the thing that's so cool about it is, you know, you kept hearing it. And if anyone that knew like the song, you know, while listening to Going Down the Road, you're like, ah, why don't you just bring back Bid You Goodnight? <laughs> it just makes so much, so much sense to do it. And I think back to like three thirty one eighty eight from the Brendan Burn Arena and the uh, the going down the road from that night and just how like how thematic the uh, the jam is at the end as a bid you and then you know a couple of years later they brought it back uh, or they brought it back the next year and then played the sort of like the staple version of it I want to say on ten sixteen eighty nine at the Brendan Burn Arena super super cool but there's a uh, it, it's one of the songs that I was super pleased they brought back and I can't think of another like true a cappella song that the Grateful Dead played. Um, well, the only other one that comes to mind is uh, Addicts of My Life, right? I mean, I guess they, they kind of turned that into an a cappella tune a little bit at the end, but it was typically played, uh, at least on the record and everywhere else, with a, a little bit of music behind it. But yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, this was that song. And, you know, to hear just Jerry, you know, belting out one one biblical verse after another there, um, you know, you can imagine being under revival tent and, you know, he's up there leading the charge. And, you know, I, I don't think it's surprising that, uh, the Grateful Dead had a lot of followers who had strong religious beliefs, uh, certainly among the Hasidic Jewish community uh, and, and the more religious Jewish people. He was very popular. Um, I, I met people from, you know, every religion and every background at Grateful Dead shows. And, uh, you know, whether it was Buddhists who came in because they loved his message of peace and the way he communicated it or anybody else, he, he just, he had that spirit in him. And I truly believe that, you know, certainly during my Grateful Dead years, although I, you know, wasn't, uh, you know, giving up on my, my own underlying religiosity, if you will. The Grateful Dead, I don't want to say they were a religion because I think that makes it sound wrong, but they were a spiritual experience for me. And, you know, when I was at a Grateful Dead concert, when I was with fellow deadheads, it really felt like a community, like a congregation, like an organization of, of like-minded people who were just, you know, all in the same place at the same time because what was happening up on stage touched us in a way that we felt compelled to be there. Yeah, I agree. And I always think that's the major difference between, you know, sort of the uh, way that you approach like real sports fanatics versus real music fanatics is, you know, both of them will spend all their uh, income that they have disposable income, like pursuing their passion. But the differences between like sports and music is I don't think you have that same um, like true joy that you experience. Like in, for, for sports, it's binary, you know, someone wins, someone loses with music. It's not it's, you know, everyone there is winning. 
And uh, that's something I truly enjoy about it. And, you know, that's why I like, had to go see as many shows. And people are like, you're, you're ridiculous. You're going to see the Grateful Dead over 100 times. And I'd be like, well, you've seen the Yankees, you know, 200 times. What's the difference? You know, like for, for me, the difference, I, I truly enjoy the outcome either way. Right. That's an excellent point. And I remember reading a, a, an opinion piece years and years and years ago, right, when I first started seeing the Dead, uh, that compared going to a Grateful Dead to going to a baseball game. And it talked about the traditions and people sit in the same place and people keep score, whether it's keeping a scorecard or keeping track of all the songs and you could see a hundred dead shows and then go to your hundred and first and see something you've never seen before. And, you know, to say you go to a baseball game forever and one day walk in and see a no hitter. You, you don't know what you're getting until you get there and you see it, but you're absolutely right. At the end of a baseball game, half the people leave happy and half the people leave sad and taking the entire market, not just necessarily the home crowd, but right. Grateful dead show. Everybody walks out happy. The band is happy. The people are happy. Hopefully law enforcement is happy because everybody was really mellow and had a good time. The promoters were happy because they made lots of money. The local community is happy because all these deadheads spill out and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on post-show gas and food and water and everything under the sun. It was just this amazing, amazing community. And, and, and this is where we can bring the cannabis into this show today, Larry, which is all the weed dealers were happy. You know, we certainly yes. made a lot of money in the lot. So, you know, the... That for a long time, that was where the best, you know, cannabis in America was disseminated was on the Grateful Dead lot. And, you know, like the, the guys that I knew early on that were doing things that are now, you know, pretty well mainstream today. You know, that was that was the place where, you know, you could always find if you knew who to talk to the absolute best weed in America, no matter where you were in America. So, you know, the, the weed dealers, uh, you know, the, the earliest days of the cannabis industry were certainly, you know, happening on the Grateful Dead lot. Uh, you're absolutely right. And to me, it's, it's more than just the presence that to me, cannabis is integral to the Grateful Dead. You know, and some might say, well, hallucinogenics and all of that. And yes, I mean, you can certainly make an argument, uh, certainly when you're in the primal dead period, uh, that hallucinogenics did fuel a lot of that and, and, and put them where they are. But I think my knowledge maybe on this is very limited. But my understanding is that some or most of them or a few of them at least, you know, continued to smoke marijuana, you know, throughout their whole career. And I think for many, many people that were turned on to the Grateful Dead, a lot of times it happened when you were sitting in a college dorm room or your big brother's room. And, you know, you were smoking marijuana for the first time. And somebody said, well, if you're going to get high, man, you got to listen to the Grateful Dead. And all of a sudden there's this connection. And, and you know, maybe it's because when you're high, you're, you know, your brain is, is tuned in a certain way and you're picking up, you know, the notes that Jerry's trying to send you. We always used to joke as to whether, you know, Jerry was talking to people on two different levels. You know, I'm playing one level of my music for the folks that are tripping and the other level for everybody else so they can just enjoy it and have a good time. And, and one of the best lessons I learned over the course of my Grateful Dead career was that I could go to a Grateful Dead show without tripping and sometimes without smoking even and still have such a great time. And that's, you know, really what, what struck me was that the, you know, the, the marijuana might be part of the gateway process to get you in the door. Uh, the marijuana might be part of the process that helps you really first enjoy it. Um, but after a while, the marijuana just, it, it's there and it's just a part of it. And, and, you know, that's the beauty of it. Where else in America? And I had this conversation with my son. Can you walk into a building that has police all the way around it to keep people without tickets from coming in and to keep people from breaking the law? And the minute you walk through the doors and you sit down in your seats, and really the minute the lights go out, it's as though you've been transported to a different place and the local rules really don't matter. And as long as you don't get out of line and you don't hurt anybody, and you don't do stupid things, and all you do is sit in your seat and take one hits or smoke a joint, they don't bother you. People are getting high in the auditorium theater in downtown Chicago in 2010. Chicago is one of the most strictly enforced no smoking ordinances in the country. And people are in there getting stoned and nobody lifted a finger to stop them. And how could they? You know, when you book a Grateful Dead show, you're getting the whole bundle with it. This is what happens. This is what people do. And yes, marijuana is inextricably linked 
to the Grateful Dead. And again, not that you can't have one without the other, but when you take the two combined, right, like matching up uh, uh, the uh, the color scenes in uh, The Wizard of Oz with Dark Side of the Moon, right? when you put the right things together, marijuana and the Grateful Dead, it takes you amazing places. Yeah, and I think that that's been shown time and again by how many guests we've had on the show that have been very tightly related to the Grateful Dead community uh, that are also just fantastic uh, cultivators. So it's, uh, you know, a lot of the great brands, not to mention that, you know, Mickey's got a brand and that uh, Garcia's got a brand and Big Steve's got a brand. I mean, there's a lot of people that are part of the direct Grateful Dead family themselves that, uh, that you know, have their own cannabis brand at this point. So it's, it's clearly um, inextricably linked between the two. And uh, it just shows that the, the two are kind of made for each other. I mean, I, I can't remember who said, but there was someone early on, Larry, that said to us when I said, hey, let's. Oh, it's David Gans. When I called into the radio show and I said, yeah, we've got the Dead Canvas show. And they said, oh, that sounds like peanut butter and jelly. Those two are made for each other. True. And, and, and again, you know, David Gans, who turned us on to Terry Haggerty, who, you know, it fits this description that you just described to a T, right? And that's that's who he is. He's a guy that's deeply connected to the music and deeply connected to the whole, you know, vibe and, and, and feel of marijuana. And, and a number of people that we've had on our show, um, uh, you know, who have all expressed, you know, the, the, the not just, oh, I like getting stoned but the, the change it's had on their life and the impact it's had on their life. And I have said it and I'll say it again, uh, that certainly in my case, I think that you know, the moment that I discovered marijuana and to some degree, the Grateful Dead right around the same time really changed the, the, the arc and the direction of my life and where I went, what I did and what I wound up doing and, and what values were important to me and, and which ones weren't as important to me. And it, it certainly shaped my life. And, you know, I'm very comfortable in knowing that, you know, that, uh, to some degree, it's also helped shape my kids' lives. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very comfortable with all of that. And I think that uh, there's just so many benefits here and so many positive things. You never hear people saying, you never hear people having negative experiences with the Grateful Dead, meaning with the music and the band itself, not the idiot sitting next to you who has too much to drink, right? And, and again, if, if, you're, if you're smoking your marijuana responsibly and you're smoking it at home and with people, you know, who you enjoy and whatever, it's a very positive thing and it brings out the good in people. We all talk, oh, we sit around and giggle. Well, yeah, you're giggling, but why are you giggling? You're giggling because you're in a happy place. It's taking you to a place where, you know, human beings like to be, where we're hardwired to be. You know, I think the Grateful Dead and its music exemplifies that as well as anything else that could. Well, I will definitely uh, bring that to uh, my dinner conversation tonight with former guest of ours, Alex Beard. If you remember Alex, an uh, artist from New Orleans, but I'm having dinner with him tonight. I do. So, uh, yeah, so it should, uh, should be interesting. And we'll definitely talk about painting and cannabis and uh, the Grateful Dead. So uh, it should be, should be fun. And I know he'll send his uh, regards to both you and Dan. Excellent. So your last clip, you know, let, let's let's talk about it for a second because, like, yep. look, this this song is one of the songs that for years and years I could never really, you know, get a beat on what it was all about. And then, you know, sort of one day it just sort of clicked for me. And, uh, you know, I was just sort of thought of it as another slow encore, the way like a knocking on Heaven's Door was or the way an Addicts was or um, or uh, Black Muddy River. But in, in, in many ways, Broke Down uh, is a much more complicated song than that. You know, it's a much more complicated song. Like, in... in I'll tell you, one of my favorite things out there is on 10-31-1991 during the Dark Star when Bill Graham had just passed away and Ken Kesey came out and did the rap during the Dark Star. And it's, you know, about as heavy as it gets when when Phil Lesh is just thumping away on the bass. And Kesey's talking about after his son had passed away that the Grateful Dead, um, Bill Graham had sent um, uh, money up to put a... um, a signpost up that would show a direction on the top of the hill where his son was killed in a car accident. And then he, he starts talking about, you know, 
when the Grateful Dead play Broke Down Palace, you know, they're, they're telling me about my son. And if you haven't heard it, that, that Dark Star is one of the heaviest things the Grateful Dead have ever done, thanks to Kesey getting up there and doing the rap. But, um, but you know, it, it, that when I heard that rap for the first time, it caused me to go back and really listen to the words again to try to figure out what Ken was talking about there. And, uh, and, and Broke Down is, like, in, outside of, like, some of the best harmonies the Grateful Dead play, outside of, like, you know, just, um, you know, some really fun, like, um, iconic single lines that everyone likes to sing together in unison. It's just an absolutely stunningly beautiful song. It, it, well, you know, with you having said that, I guess there's really not a whole lot more to say about it. You're right. It, it, it's an amazing song. It's a beautiful song. Um, you know, I, I always took it to be a song about, you know, on, on a more simple level, a guy breaking up with a girl. But I think when you stop and you really look at it deeper, at least when I do, I see it as a guy coming to peace with the fact that maybe his time on earth is ending. And that's the, that's the relationship that's ending, you know, that that's what's happening. The, the, the relationship that you have with, with either your God or with other people or with the earth while you're alive. And that, that it's a song speaking out to somebody who may be going down through that journey. And I heard it for the first time uh, in 1982 at this uh, Syracuse show that I've talked about with the ICO and everything else when I got on the bus and after this absolutely amazing show that ends with a sugar magnolia that will always stick in my brain as one of the finest and sitting at the very back end zone of the carrier dome with the Grateful Dead over 100 yards away down at the other end and seeing an entire sea of people swaying back and forth with sugar magnolia and just knowing that this is what I was going to do. They came back out and they played this version of uh, Broke Down Palace that started off rather lighthearted because they were playing a joke on Bobby and somebody came out and announced that it was Bob Weir's fifth wedding anniversary and they had flown his wife out from somewhere and, you know, we all, all, all out there chuckling. And then they dive into this version of Broke Down and it really hit me because a, it's a beautiful song um, and, you know, the message that it, it conveys is really big. But B, I, although I didn't know for sure because it was only my second dead show, I kind of instinctively knew this was the end of the concert. And I felt like Jerry was saying goodbye to me. And it was a night that I did not want to end. I wanted to be, I wanted to be there forever that night. I wanted that show just to keep going on and on and on. And when it was over, I was, I was walking outside. We were getting in a car and we were driving back to somewhere else. And it wasn't inside a Grateful Dead show. Um, and it, it, it really hit me hard. Um, and, you know, to be able to go back and hear it now is great. And, you know, quite frankly, I can't think of a better way, you know, to end our show and, you know, to show our love and respect for Jerry and, uh, and to really say goodbye to him uh, than by playing part of this clip. So on that note, uh, thank you to everyone for listening today. You know, as you can tell, I think from the way Rob and I were talking, uh, you know, this is a real act of love that we do. And uh, most of the time we're, we're talking about the Grateful Dead within the context of the Grateful Dead. And that does include Jerry, obviously. But I think that one of the best parts about the Grateful Dead was their efforts, including Jerry's, to emphasize the importance of everybody else in the group. But once or twice a year on his birthday and the anniversary of his passing, uh, as Rob pointed out before, it does seem appropriate uh, and, and the perfect time to take a couple of minutes and just focus on what an amazing person he was, an amazing musician, an amazing band member and, and bandmate, uh, and just an amazing part of our society. Uh, not just the Grateful Dead Society, but society at large, because he only made positive contributions to the world, Jerry Garcia. He didn't make people mad. He didn't piss people off. He didn't go out of his way to lie or, or stir up a group. I mean, that man had, if he wanted to run for public office, he could have had millions of people moving at his beck and call. Uh, but that's not what he was about. He was just about a guy who wanted to make everybody happy, and he did.
And, uh, you know, I could say thank you for the rest of my life and it wouldn't make a difference. And I have been saying thank you for all of my life up to this point. And I'll continue to do so. Um, this, 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 these shows that we do and talk about Jerry, you know, on some level may be the most important stuff we do about the Grateful Dead all year and, and just really force everyone for a minute to get back to this basic underlying notion of who he was uh, and what he meant. Uh, any, any parting words, Rob? No, that was really well said, Larry. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's a great way to, to end our show, as was always a fitting way to end theirs. And I think that, you know, when you curate your slower songs for an encore, it's usually because, you know, the, 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 the exciting ones are always easy to do because it leaves everyone euphoric, right? But, you know, playing a slow encore uh, is tougher and it normally comes with some sort of reflection. And, uh, and I think Rope Down certainly has it. And I think that's why, you know, uh, the, the Fairly Well shows ended with, you know, Broke Down Palace as the final song they played to say this, this is it. It's a, a sense of finality. Absolutely. Well said. Um, so uh, in one second here, we're going to sign off. We're going to ask Dan to play that for you guys on the way out so you can sit and listen and maybe have a tear run down your cheek as well. Um, thank you to Dan Humiston, as always, for a great job of producer. Rob, thank you so much. Uh, love talking with you about all this stuff, and uh, your input is uh, very timely and important and, and very much appreciated. Um, and to all of our listeners out there, uh, enjoy. Uh, ho I hope you've enjoyed the days between. Uh, keep listening to The Grateful Dead. Uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And uh, please enjoy this final clip. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects Network. Network.